title of the sermon this morning is God's Profile Picture. I'm serious. Um, think about your profile picture. Now, for, for the few of you in a room this size, there's probably one or two people that aren't into any kind of social networking, and that's fine. Good for you. That means all of your relationships are face-to-face, voice-to-voice relationships. That's great. Um, but for the rest of us who are, who are all slowly losing our interpersonal skills because we interact online... Uh, a profile picture is what you set up when you get onto some sort of website that, that you have some sort of membership to and other people can see information about you. And there are dozens of these sites. Facebook is only the most popular one, so, or maybe the most famous one. So your profile picture is what, you, is what you put online when you set up all your settings. This is who I am, right? Uh, and, of course, everyone tells the exact truth about themselves online all the time, right? And you set up this profile that gives information about you, right? Male, 27 years old, you know, lives in Garden Grove, California. Interests are whatever. And then you put a picture of yourself there. Now, I think that it's really interesting to look at the, the pictures that people choose to serve as their profile picture online. Because this is, this is how they're presenting themselves to the world. This is who I am. And I think it's very interesting. I have a cousin that does this, as a matter of fact. Some people put a picture of their dog as their profile picture. Okay? This is who I am. Right? This is what defines me. I'm a Jack Russell Terrier. I mean, come on. So, some people will put a picture of their kids. When I'm looking for someone online that I haven't seen in many years, and, you know, I'm looking for, you know, whatever the name might be, James McGillicuddy, well, of course, there's three million of those people, people with that name, on Facebook. So, how do you know which one is the one you're looking for? It doesn't help that that they're, they're, you know, half of them are putting pictures of their kids or their dogs or the logo of their favorite sports team or whatever as their Facebook picture. But they do that. People do that because that's what define, they, they, they This is how they are portraying themselves to the world. Sometimes we'll do something fun for a few days, like you know, a picture of a cartoon character or whatever. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, this, this passage is one that many of us have heard of. We've heard the story. Uh, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've heard this story, this encounter between God and Moses. And you've heard about how God uh, proclaims his own name and, and, and gives a list of his attributes, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness or steadfast love and faithfulness and uh, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet does not leave the, right, the, the guilty unpunished. We've all heard this, but I, I think many of us fail to realize how important this passage is to our understanding of God. It, in all of the scriptures, in all 66 books, in the great story of redemption that it tells about God sending his son to restore the, his broken creation to himself, in that great story, there are, there are certain key moments that are just very definitive 
for, for God's revelation of himself to us, and therefore for our understanding of who he is. And this is one of them. And I want to show you this morning, simply by telling you the story, by, by, telling, a, by, by telling the story together this morning, I want us to uh, understand better, not just this passage, but the role that it plays in the great scope of the story of God, and especially how it connects to the person of Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we have to tell the story. So this is not like probably a lot of sermons that you hear where you know, there's three points, and it's outlined from the, you know, from the grammar in the passage, and take you know, two to six verses and, and, and kind of look at each word and such. Instead, this morning... Instead of three points in a poem, um, I want us to see the story. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell a story. Because that's what it is. Exodus 33 and 34. We're actually going to go through, well, even more than a chapter and a half. We're, we're going to look at, a, at, a, at the great story of redemption, the redemption of Israel. So you can turn to Exodus 33. And we're actually going to look at the text here in just a few minutes. The text of Exodus 33 leading up to 34, 6, and 7. Those of you that uh, you know, have read books on how to study the Bible or maybe you're, you, you do some teaching yourself, you know how important context is? This sermon is about 94.5% context. The last, what did I, what did I leave, 5.5%? <laughs> See, I'm not a mathematician, I'm a theology guy, so I get myself in trouble when I do that. The last little bit is going to be the actual text of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Because the context is what defines the understanding of this. So, let's recall the story. Uh, God establishes his nation through the amazing events of the life of Joseph. God establishes the beginnings of the nation of Israel in the land of Egypt. And there they grow and they flourish. And eventually they're put under bondage because they have flourished so much. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, so they're, they're put under bondage in the land of Egypt, <clears throat> and God calls Moses, uh, preserves his life as a baby, and then calls Moses as an adult to, to be the leader of the nation as God redeems them from their bondage and releases them from slavery and calls them out of Egypt to be his own people, and he'll... he'll He'll be their God. They'll be his covenant people. And he'll be their God and live among them and, and give them the, the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham. So uh, Moses goes, uh, you know, in, the, in this calling at, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses is out at the foot of Mount Horeb, which is later known as Mount Sinai. Uh, and he's just tending his father-in-law's flocks. And God appears to him there in the famous burning bush episode calls him, Moses is kind of like, I don't really want to do that, I'm not a public person, um, and the Lord says, I'm, I'm going to call your brother to go alongside of you, and I'll give you the words to say, and just quit whining and do what I'm asking you to do. And so, um, that's, that's a little expansion on the text, but that's really, I mean, eventually God says, all right, Moses, enough, it's time for you to go and obey. So, Moses goes back to the land, and we've got this incredible uh, story of deliverance where God imposes these plagues on the land of Egypt in order to um, cause them, 
in order, first of all, to reveal who he is, right? Because Pharaoh says, Yahweh, who's Yahweh? I've never heard of him, and so I don't, I'm not going to listen to, to uh, what he says. And so the Lord answers his question. You want to know who Yahweh is? I'm going to tell you. And he uh, imposes the, the, the plagues. The people uh, are, are released, and they go, and God delivers them at the Red Sea, uh, and we've got this great celebration along the banks of the, uh, the, the shore of the Red Sea when the water crashes back down and destroys the Egyptian army and the people are free. So God takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai, back where it all started with Moses, and they're all encamped around the foot of Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, tell everybody to purify themselves and to back away from the mountain because I'm going to come down and make a covenant with you. And so we're up to about Exodus 19 now. God comes down on the mountain and it's this incredible scene of, 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 of clouds and thunder and lightning and darkness and earthquakes and rumbling and it's just this loud and terrifying scene. And God proclaims his covenant to the people, what we call the Ten Commandments. And everybody hears it and everybody's terrified. And the people say, Moses... If God keeps this up, we're all going to die. You go talk to God for us. And God calls Moses up onto the mountain, and for 40 days he's up there receiving God's, receiving the law, the covenant. Comes down, uh, it, and it's, it's on stone tablets. And he comes down from the mountain because God says, you better get down there at the end of the 40 days. You better get down there because the people have already broken the covenant that we just started to make. So Moses comes down. Now we're in Exodus 32, and you know this story, don't you? The golden calf. The people went to Aaron after some period of time. We don't know how long. And uh, they said to Aaron, Moses disappeared. He went up on the mountain, and the mountain is a really scary place right now, and we don't know what's happened to him. Uh, we, maybe he's abandoned us. Maybe he died up there. We don't know what happened. So you, Aaron, you need to make us a God that we can worship and so that the nation will stay together. And so Aaron gathers up gold from the people and he makes the, the golden calf and they start to bow down to it. And, um, and, and you know, they said, you know, behold, here is Yahweh or Jehovah you know, who delivered, you out of the, delivered us out of the land of Egypt, and they were pretending that this golden calf was, was, was the true God. And they fell into great sin together in their partying, and it was just, it was a horrendous thing. And so the Lord tells Moses, you better get down there. Moses goes down, and he sees what's happening. And in his anger, he throws the stone tablets down, and they break. And Moses wasn't just throwing a fit. He wasn't having a temper tantrum there. I mean, he was angry. But he threw them down and they broke because what had the people done? They had broken the covenant that was written on those stone tablets. I mean, the ink wasn't even dry, so to speak, on this covenant. And the people had broken it already by violating the first two commandments. The very first two things that God said they mustn't do, that's what they did as soon as Moses disappeared up the mountain. So you know, the events of, the, of Exodus 32, Moses calls the, 
you know, he, he calls the faithful, you know, who is on the Lord's side? And a, a bunch of the Levites go to, to Moses. And there's this almost a, a battle, kind of like a civil war that took place right there where the Levites went out and they killed their friends, the people who were worshiping this false god. And the people realized the depth of their sin. And Moses destroys the, red, the, the golden calf. And, and God says to Moses, let me alone so that I may destroy them and start over with you. I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses. Because that's what they deserve. They've broken his covenant right after he made it with them. And so Moses pleads with God on behalf of the people And God relents to Moses' prayer because Moses' prayer on behalf of the nation is a prayer of repentance, isn't it? And it's a prayer that's calling, that's affirming God's promises and God's faithfulness. So the the true worship of the true God hasn't been completely lost here. And so God relents and he, um, uh, he says, okay, um, but in the day that I judge, I will judge. And so God doesn't wipe out the people at this point. Uh, but there's this feeling, this great... I mean, he sent a plague on them at the end of Exodus 32. By now, you should be open to Exodus 33. The very last verse says, and the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. So, 3,000 men died uh, at the hand of the Levites in defense of the true God, and then, presumably, thousands more died as a result of this plague that came in judgment. But God didn't wipe them out. An act of grace. So that brings us to the beginning of our story. This, that brings us up to date. What's going to happen? Has the relationship between God and Israel been restored? I mean, the covenant is broken at this point. What are we going to do? Look at the beginning of chapter 33. So the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, basically all the inhabitants of that land. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people, stubborn. So the Lord says, you have given evidence that... that uh, if we go on this journey from here all the way up to the land of Canaan, that you're just going to fall into sin again because you're stubbornly sinful people. And I'll I'll wipe you out. So you go, but I'm not going to go with you. Do you remember how God made his presence known with the people? As soon as they crossed the Red Sea, God made his presence known with them by means of a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. That was the the personal presence of God among his people that he had redeemed. So God says to Moses, you, take the people, did you notice how he says it? Take these people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt with you and go. But that pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, my personal presence, it's not going to go with you. For the safety of the people. Well, what did God tell Moses at the burning bush? He said, don't worry, Moses, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. But now because of the rebellion of the people, God is saying, you go, Moses, and I'm not going to go. 
Now this sets up a very scary situation for Moses and for all the people. Because where are they? They're out in the wilderness at the foot of this rocky mountain. They can't live out there. So, look at verse 4 of Exodus 33. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, when the Lord was talking to Moses, he said this, Say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. It's interesting. It seems to be saying here that from this point on, for the rest of their lives in the wilderness until the nation entered into the land of Canaan, the people didn't wear jewelry. That would be a sign of, of normal life, of things going well, you know, ornamentation. They took it all off as a sign of mourning because of their sin and the judgment that they deserved from God. So now Moses, what this does is it sets up a conversation between Moses and the Lord. Exodus 32 didn't solve the problem. They're they're around the mountain, and the people, I mean, are they really going to follow Moses if the Lord is not backing him up and showing his presence there? So in verses 7 to 11, it simply shows what happened during this time. There was a tent where Moses would go and meet with the Lord, and the people, when they saw Moses going out there, they would stand at their tent, and they would worship the Lord. And so there's this great tension in the air. I mean, we're talking a couple million people surrounding the the mountain there in the wilderness. And they're all scared. What's going to happen? Because God said he's not going to go with us. This is disastrous. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. It's like he's saying, Lord, you promised that you would go with me, and now you're saying you won't, but I assume you're going to keep your promise. How how are you going to provide along the way? Who are you going to send along with me? He continues in verse 12. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider too that this nation is your people. Isn't this interesting? Now if, 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 if it was me, I would have gone into the tent and said, Lord, you promised. Right? It's like when my kids were seven years old. They, and, and I did something that was different than what I said I would do. Actually, you know, my youngest is 16, and she still does that. So, it, you know, it's, it, the tone is a little different, but you know, what do you do? You go to your dad, and you say, but dad, you promised. I, you know, you have to expect that Moses is going to go and meet with the Lord and just say, Lord, you promised. What's the deal? But he doesn't do that. There's so much to be learned about prayer in this conversation, and this isn't really a sermon about prayer, but, but notice how Moses talks to God here. He doesn't say, Lord, you promised, and I'm holding you to your promise. He says, Lord, our relationship, he said, you have said, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight. Now, we, that's not recorded for us in Scripture anywhere when the Lord said that to him, but nowhere else in Scripture is that said of another human being. That the Lord said to him or to her, I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. 
very unique relationship between the Lord and Moses. So Moses sort of stands on that relationship, and he says, Lord, please, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Moses said, Lord, I'm not fighting you on this. But I need to understand. Show me your ways. Show me how this works. Tell me more about who you are and how you operate so that I can cooperate, so that I can go along with this faithfully, so, so, so I can be obedient, so I can be an effective servant. He just said, show me your ways. Teach me. Help me understand you so that I can line up with your purposes and find favor in your sight. What an interesting approach. Not the one that I probably would have taken. And that's his first request. This conversation unfolds really in three steps. So technically there is a three-point outline. I'm just hiding it inside the story. So that's his request. Show me your ways. Help me understand. Look at what the Lord says in reply to him. Um, starting in verse 14. So the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Wait. Is that it? I mean, that was really quick. You go past it so quickly. It's, did, did the Lord just answer his prayer there? It, are we done? Well, look, at, look at, at, at exactly what the Lord says. He says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, because in English, the word you can either be singular or plural, you can't see what's going on here. But in the, in the original language, it's a singular. There's a difference between singular and plural you. And here it's a singular you. The Lord is talking to Moses specifically. And he says, my presence will go with you, Moses, like I promised at the burning bush. And I will give you, Moses, Rest. In other words, I'll give you peace along the way because this is going to be a ridiculously difficult experience. But I will comfort you. I will give you peace along the way. So that's great, right? But it's not exactly what Moses was asking for. And it's not an answer to his request. What was his request? Show me your ways. Teach me. Help me understand. So the Lord is kind of letting that hang there for now. His first answer is, don't worry, Moses. I'm going to go with you, and I will give you rest along the way. So Moses comes back to the Lord. He says, great. If your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. And look at how all this language is very plural. It's all about us and we. Look, look at it. Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So Moses is sort of respectfully, gently saying, Lord, that's wonderful. I want your presence to go with me, but what about us? What about the other people? How will they know that I'm still supposed to be the leader if you are not publicly present leading us through the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and so forth? So Moses shows that he is still very concerned about the people. I mean, he must be so frustrated with them. Wouldn't you be? I mean, you just spent 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain with the Lord, receiving God's revelation and the covenant. You come down, 
and the people have already broken the covenant that you just spent 40 days receiving. How frustrating would that be? But Moses' first concern is what God has called him to do, which is to lead the nation. So, Lord, help us. And the Lord said, and, and you know, he says, we're, we're supposed to be your people. So how are we going to be distinguished as your people unless you go with us in a, in a public way? So look at God's answer in verse 17. So God's second answer is this. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I do know you by name. There was an intimacy between God and Moses that, I, that it seems no other human being has ever had since the fall. Because the language that's used here to describe the relationship between God and Moses is, is unique in all of Scripture. I have known you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. So, that's the answer that Moses needed, right? Isn't that what everybody's so scared about? If the Lord doesn't go with us, then we're going to get wiped out by enemies. We're going to die in the wilderness. We're going to starve to death. Uh, you know, we're, just, we're going to dissipate and disappear into the wilderness. So God has agreed to go with them. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I will go along with you. My presence in the fire and the cloud will be there. Resting, leading the nation or resting over the tabernacle and everyone will know that I'm with you, that you're still my people. Great. Now, if we were back here with one of my kids and I finally said, okay, yes, I will do what you've asked, what are they going to do? They're out the door before I change my mind, right? But that's not what Moses does. Why? I've, I've sometimes, I've... I've um, pondered Moses' frame of mind at this moment. Just think about what he's going through. The Lord has agreed to do what you've asked, which he previously said he wouldn't do. And we could get into the theology of you know, God's sovereignty and why he allowed these events to develop the way they did and, and, and so forth. And uh, that's, that's kind of a parallel topic. But just think about Moses in the moment here. The Lord has agreed to go. Shouldn't you leave the room? Say, thank you, Lord. I'm going to go give the good news to everybody. Because everybody's still standing at the, you know, the door of their tent, nervously waiting to see what the Lord says to Moses. But he doesn't do that. Look at what he does in verse 18. He, goes, he, he comes right back at the Lord... And he says, please, show me your glory. See, God hasn't answered Moses' actual request yet, his first request, which was what? Teach me your ways so that I may know you, so that I may find favor in, my, in your sight. Moses' overriding concern here, amidst the crazy circumstances of his life at the moment, his overriding concern was that he would know God better. Teach me who you are. Help me understand you. Because I want to follow you faithfully. Help me see you clearly 
so I can follow you faithfully. That's what he wants most. Of course he wants the Lord to go with him. Of course he wants the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and the presence of God in the tabernacle and, you know, that they're just about to build. And Of course he wants all that. But what he wants most is to know God so that he can follow him obediently and faithfully. So, that's the last that we hear of Moses. That's the last that we hear from Moses in this story. Moses is done talking. It's all up to the Lord now. And I can't, speaking of God's sovereignty, I can't help but conclude that God has brought about in his mysterious sovereignty, he has brought about or allowed or however you want to describe it, this scenario to develop so that he could have this moment with Moses right now. So that he could speak the words that he's about to speak to Moses the next morning on the top of the mountain. So the Lord prepares him. Look at verse 19 of Exodus 33. Moses says, please show me your glory. So the Lord replies to him this way. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And you know that the all capital Lord in our English translations represents the divine name in Hebrew of Yahweh, which we can translate as the I am or the one who is or I am that I am, that whole thing. So the Lord is going to come down and proclaim his own name. Here's another thing that doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture. God never comes down and proclaims his own name. But he's going to do it here. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me because we're uh, on top of the mountain, we would have to assume, where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a crevice, a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Fascinating language here that makes it look like God has a body. But it's, it's, it's language that says you cannot... It's God's way of saying, you cannot bear the full presence of my glory. You would die. So I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to tuck you away and cover you so that you can't see the fullness of my glory. And then when my glory has passed by, I'll take away the covering and you'll see what's left over. You'll see the afterglow. The, I don't know, residue doesn't sound right, but the, what, the, what's remaining after my glory has passed by. You'll see that, and that'll be enough for you. So, Moses says nothing. What's he going to say, right? And so God gives him these instructions. Ignore the chapter division in where, thir- where chapter 34 begins. Just ignore the chapter division. That's not inspired or anything. The story just continues. The Lord is still talking, and he says to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were On the first tablets, which you broke, be ready by morning, 
Come up on the morning, uh, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain, no flocks or herds or anything. Verse 4, so Moses cut the tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now, if you're following the whole story, this is, I believe, Moses' fourth hike up the mountain. His fourth hike. And this time he's got to carry these two chunks of stone with him. Okay, And they're called tablets, but I don't think they were like the size of Tylenol. Okay, they were something big that you could write on. And he's got to carry those things all the way up the mountain. What's he going to see? What's going to happen when I get up there? Something very unusual is going to happen. I, I spent 40 days with the Lord up there, but never once did he show his glory. There was something different, a different kind of presence up there. So Moses goes up. And he stands there, and from what we can tell, Moses is praying. But Moses presents himself before the Lord on top of the mountain. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Yahweh. This is what he said. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and I'm going to use the name Yahweh here. Passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh. Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. Let's let's notice one really obvious thing first. When the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass before you, but I'm going to protect you when my glory passes by because you can't see that. We're thinking of the presentation of God's glory as bright lights and loud noises, rumbling, lightning, bright, big, big, bright something, and loud. Moses doesn't tell us about any of that. Come on, Moses, what did it look like? But he doesn't tell us because that's not the point of God's revelation to Moses here on top of the mountain. The point is not the impressive bright lights and loud noises. The point is that God shows Moses his glory. And his glory is understood in terms of his attributes. His glory is understood in terms of his character. This is the answer to Moses' first request the day before. Teach me your ways so that I may know you, so that I may follow you faithfully, find favor in your sight. You want to know about my ways, Moses? Okay, here I am. This is who I am. Now, here's the famous verse. I just read them, the two verses, 6 and 7. But remember the, the, the national covenantal situation. Everybody's frightened because they've sinned and they know that they deserve judgment. But when God reveals himself, what does he say? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and generous with steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. There are three Hebrew words that are used most often for sinfulness in the Old Testament, and all three of them are here. It's as if the Lord is saying, there's no sin that I can't forgive, even if you break two of the Ten Commandments. There's no sin that I can't forgive. Again, looking at it in terms of God's sovereignty, it's as if God, in His sovereignty, allowed and ordained that all of those ugly things would happen so that He could come to this moment with Moses and the nation of Israel and tell them who He really is. Let them see His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness so clearly. So, Moses has his answer. And he goes on. He quickly bows down to the earth and worships God. And he gives the people to God. He says, take us as your possession. And God makes the covenant again with with Israel in chapter 34. Now, understand how important the story is to understanding God's words there. But it goes farther than that. It goes actually much farther than that. It's as if in giving us this story, this true story of what God said to Moses and the nation of Israel in those circumstances, it's as if God was saying to Israel, when you think of me, when you think of Yahweh, when you think of the true God, the one who redeemed you from Israel, this is what I want you to think. The first thought of me should be merciful, gracious, patient, generous, forgiving, and righteous. Does not leave the guilty unpunished, but visits the iniquity of sin on the heads of sinners. This is what I want you to think, the Lord says, because this is who I am. Now, it's obvious that Israel got the point, because if you read the rest of the Old Testament, Eight times in the Old Testament, this passage is quoted. Eight times. And it's not just in the immediate time frame of, you know, the nation of Israel uh, on the, you know, going up to the land of Canaan. It's not like for the next 40 years they kept reminding themselves. Moses does remind them of it in Numbers chapter 14 as they're getting ready to enter into the land, or as they're um, um, refusing to go into the land, you know, the whole Caleb and Joshua story and the twelve spies. He reminds them of this moment. The Lord revealed himself, and he told us who he is. But there's seven more quotes of this throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Some of them are are in the Psalms, during the years of David. The last reference, in terms of history, the chronology of the Old Testament, the last quotation of Exodus 34.6 is in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, from a historical point of view, Nehemiah is probably the Old Testament book that was written last, right before the 400 years of silence uh, before Jesus came. So it's as if Israel really understood what God was saying. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, this serves as a shorthand description of the true God. Now, do you see why I, I, understand, why, why I think Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is so critical to our understanding of God? Because God himself has presented it to us as the, the, the pattern for our first thoughts of him. 
It's his profile picture. It's a summary of who he is. But it goes further than just eight quotations in the Old Testament. This same description of God is exactly what we see on display in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear the attributes of Exodus 34, 6 in there? Goodness, loving kindness, mercy, grace, generosity. He poured out on us richly. And even righteousness. Because he talks about us being justified by his grace through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the embodiment of this profile picture of God. All of those attributes in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are on display, on purpose, in the life of Jesus Christ. And we see one more thing, if you give me two more minutes. We see one more thing. Did you feel the tension in, in Exodus 34? You know, God says, merciful, gracious, patient, generous, forgiving. But then he says, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. How can he do that? If he's going to be merciful and gracious and forgiving, how can he not leave the guilty unpunished? He doesn't say. He doesn't say in Exodus 34. He just lets that question hang there in the air. It just hangs there until until the Messiah comes. Until we see the Son of God in human flesh living a perfectly righteous life and going to an undeserved death on the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 3. And we'll end here. In Romans chapter 3, we see the resolution of that tension that is left in Exodus 34. Starting in verse 24, Paul talks about how sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God put forward His Son as a propitiation, a big word that means a sacrifice that is offered in order to take the wrath of God. In order to absorb the punishment that is deserved. Keep reading in uh, Romans 3. So God did this. He put forward His Son as a propitiation in His blood to show His righteousness. Verse 26 picks it up and says, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, which means righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
How is it that Yahweh of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 can be merciful and gracious and forgiving and generously so to sinners even though he is a God who visits the iniquity on the, on the, on the sinner? The way he can do that is by giving us a substitute. By providing himself the lamb that would take the punishment that the unrighteous deserve so that his mercy and grace and forgiveness can be poured out on covenant-breaking sinners. And so, the tension that is left in our perception of the character of God in Exodus 34 is resolved in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross where the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God come together with his righteousness and his justice. And that's how we understand how a God of righteousness can be a God of forgiving love. So, when we think of God, our thoughts must be controlled by the way that he's revealed himself. Our thoughts must be controlled by his love. God is a God of love, generous love. By his righteousness, God is a God of righteousness. He doesn't love us like, you know, an old grandpa that just doesn't really care what you do because you're so cute and he just wants you to be happy. God's love is a righteous love. And so our thoughts of God must also be controlled by the gospel, where the fullness of God's glory, expressed in his character, comes into its full display as he himself provides the substitute that takes on himself the punishment that the undeserving or that the that the sinner deserves. So, this is how understanding God's profile picture as a framework for seeing the gospel, as a framework for seeing the history of the universe that's told to us in Scripture, shapes not just our thoughts of God, but eventually our lives, uh, our, our, lives our behavior, our thoughts. The song that we sang just before, or just at the end of our uh, music set this morning, um, in that song we asked God to take his word and plant it deep in us Shape and fashion us for your glory. Remember those two lines? When this passage is planted deep in your soul, it grows out through you. And we, as God's people, will look like this profile picture. Merciful, gracious, patient, generous, forgiving, and righteous. I pray that God will make us into those people. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look at this huge passage, it has such enormous scope for our understanding of your revelation to us, our understanding of your scriptures, but also in just in terms of framing the gospel for us, in terms of shaping our lives, that we could sit around and and talk about how this applies to our individual lives for hours. I pray that you would take this truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us into your likeness by the power of your Spirit, because of the work of your Son. We ask this in his name.
Amen.